Welcome to the Future of Work series presented by Algonquin College's Corporate Learning Center. I'm your host, Catherine LaRue, the Chief Learning Officer of an amazing team of creative professionals that are dedicated to helping individuals and organizations thrive. In this series, we're sharing some fantastic insights to help you optimize both yourself and your organization for the future of work. Good afternoon, Stephen. Well, that was a fun event that we just finished. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, weird as usual with <laughs> in our new our new normal. But uh, yeah, no, I, I I thought that went quite well. Really interesting questions at the end of the session. Yeah. So the the future of work speaker series for us is, I believe, that was number ten that we just completed, and we found that the interest in the topic is just growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, obviously, the pandemic has helped to spur some of it on. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, maybe a little too quickly in some instances. Did you want to speak to that about the pace that, that COVID has uh, created in this topic of where is work going in the future? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think we need to think about is, well, first of all, obviously, this is a silver lining conversation. The The bulk of what's happening in COVID is is anything but good. But the silver lining from a future work perspective is, of course, all about remote work. It's about how many people have found themselves working from their home offices if they're lucky, or their living rooms or basements, or if they're unlucky, this the side of their table. Um, it, it, and, and that has certainly sparked a conversation about how can we do a lot of things very differently in the future? How much how can we keep the good in what's happened here to us? I actually, uh, I've, I've long remembered there's a moment back in, I think it was early May, that uh, New Zealand reached zero cases. And, and of course, I mean, not zero new cases, but zero cases, period. And they reopened their economy. And there was a, there was a, um, a camera crew at a, at a bar. And at a minute after midnight, that bar celebrated kind of like what you might imagine a modern celebration of the end of World War II. They threw drinks in the air. They hugged and kissed strangers. And it's stuck with me since. And it's actually something I worry about, that if we, if we don't pick up the wins from the last few months, and if we actually don't expand that and really begin to codify what we mean by the work of the future, people will very quickly go back to normal because we miss it. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I hope that makes sense. I think this is a window that we're in right now, but we need to act. And it goes beyond just not going back to normal because of course that could spur wave two, wave three. What you're saying, I guess, is that this is a great opportunity for us to stop, to really think about it and to transform so that as we move into the future, that we gain the benefits of, of this time frame. Yeah. Like, wh- why did we all commute to the s- relatively same place at the same time every day? Um, can we stop that? Uh, can, we, can we use this kind of remote work, for an example, to employ anybody anywhere, rural and remote Canadians, hard to employ Canadians? Um, it, th- the opportunities are, are, are legion. But there's a there's a slew of design that needs to be done, and the and the design challenge is that it's not just uh, you know it's not for just me or just for you. We need we need educators, we need employers, we need governments, we need the people who design communities. We need them all to work together, mm-hmm. and pretty quickly. 
Yeah. And it's, and it's not just process and system design, it's physical design. I, I'm mindful of, you know, the very big transformation that had been happening over the last 15 years of moving to open workstations and touchdown desks and that whole phenomena. And of course, that has now, you know, people are quickly retreating from that. And I was listening to one of the senior members of um, PSAC the other day, who was saying that with the new regulations around social distancing in the workplace and the restrictions on the number of people that you can put in an elevator for some of their mega complexes the federal government have, it would take 20 hours to get everyone up to their floors. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But even if you, like, you know, thinking about workplace, even if we fast forward to when, when COVID uh, is, is no longer the organizing principle, um, I think if we are honest, this is going to sound mean, but if we're honest about what the workplace was, at least part of its role in the past was a prison. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean the place that we can make sure everybody came and we counted and made sure they were there. Now we have an opportunity to rethink the workplace and say, well, hold on. If, if there are going to be a group of people who are there all the time, a group who are only there some of the time and a group who aren't there at all, how do we rethink it to be a place maybe that is driven by a principle of a fear of missing out if you aren't there? Mm -hmm. Because, it's a place where great conversations happen, where there are tools that you might want to access, uh, more of a, a war room, a library, and a cafe mm -hmm. than a prison. Yeah, and it's not just, I think, the, uh, the employee, um, employees' feelings about, I don't want to miss out, I really like the environment, it's, you know, it makes me more productive. It's also getting um, the leaders in the organizations to suddenly, you know, to finally realize that they don't need to ride herd, that there's a way to manage uh, productivity through KPIs and other tools that allow you to manage a remote workforce. Yeah, well, two, one, one great use case and, and an observation on that. I mean, we've known for a long time, for example, contact centers benefit tremendously from fully remote work. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that is because people who who need flexibility more than they need anything else are willing to stay in contact center jobs for much longer than people who have to commute to go to that contact center job. Mm -hmm. So turnover rates drop considerably. And then there's knock-on effects. You keep people in contact centers longer. They know more about the support they're providing. Customer or citizen outcomes improve. And, and you get this sort of wonderful cycle of positive reinforcement, which isn't always been the contact center story, has it? No, exactly. Yeah. One of the things that uh, came up um, earlier on the webinar was this whole idea of the difference between small to medium-sized businesses and then enterprise workforces. So, of course, you know, Deloitte's customer base would be large multinational organizations, whereas then there is the local community operators. What do you see the primary hurdles for them in moving forward through this time? Well, first, the shameless plug. We do have the Deloitte private business that works a lot <laughs> with small and medium enterprises. But no, I, I take your point. Uh, and, and I do I do like because I, I spend my time in strategy, in, in workforce strategy, to look for the opportunity and the perceived weakness. And the opportunity for smaller businesses is they don't have as many sunken costs as the big businesses. 
the big businesses are still obsessed with large, uh, expensive ERP and now cloud implementations and wringing value out of those over decades, where the smaller enterprises could start to take up the huge explosion in the cheap and cheerful uh, technologies and turn those over quickly and build workforces that know how to do that as frankly an advantage over their slower, more monolithic competitors. We are seeing that globally in jurisdictions like in certain jurisdictions in Africa and Southeast Asia, where these young enterprising businesses are, are, are making the cell phone their main business machine and driving tremendous productivity as a result. One of the things that, of course, is near and dear to our heart at the college is how do we prep tomorrow's workforce for what we know are going to be a large magnitude of change. And one of the key pieces is the fact that this requires innovation and entrepreneurial mindset. So what do you think the education industry can do? And, and uh, as well, what do you think the governments can do to support that approach? I think the name of the game in education is to sustain for as long as possible the skills impact once folks leave. I know that sounds blindingly obvious, but the, you know, the challenge is that the technical skills have a much shorter shelf life than they used to have. We have research that says it's anywhere between two and a half to five years. It's, it's not long enough. It's not long enough from a government's perspective, for sure. And so one of the things we need to do is make sure that people are building enduring capabilities, so sort of higher order skill sets that stick with you as well. And this could be quite pragmatic. I mean, one of the examples I've often used is I used to spend a lot of time covering the industrial market. And I knew, like on a construction site, if you needed to know how to, you know, sort of how to make your way around, how to navigate the construction site or what's what, and what's happening next. Often it would be a trade, like uh, maybe somebody who's doing drywalling, but they've been around so long that they not only know how to conduct their trade, they know how their trade connects to everything else that they do. They understand the ecosystem or the architecture of a construction site. And that higher order learning, that higher order capability will last their whole career no matter what happens to their technical skill. I, I mean, I know you embedded in your question was the question of entrepreneurship, and I think it's a great debate point. I, I still am one who believes that we should help students understand the personal, their personal factors, their psychology, and how well th that psychology fits entrepreneurship. And even flag for people, hey, did you know that your, your psychology is a great match for entrepreneurship? Are you interested? Because I think sometimes we push people who are pretty risk averse and maybe logical thinking versus conceptual thinking into those positions and they struggle. Entrepreneurship's not for everyone is, I guess, my controversial position. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Stephen. And the other thing, too, that we're faced with from a, a post-secondary education, well, certainly all education levels, is that in the past, at Algonquin College and other colleges and universities, we spent a lot of time focusing on what was going to be your career. We now know that you're not going to have one career. You're going to have two or four or seven. Over the course of your lifetime, you're going to move throughout different areas of the, the working landscape. That also presents a challenge because, as you say, there are, uh, we, we like to call them the power skills. The, um, I know everybody calls them soft skills, but I, I disagree with that term. I think it, power skills is much more appropriate, and, and those become critical. But beyond that, then, there's the challenge of 
how do you prepare people for multiple careers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and open their eyes to some of the possibilities in the market. And this is this is often where I end up talking about the the so-called gig economy. Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of students know, and I've been actually talking to my oldest son about this, who's interested in getting into computer design or, or program design, uh, that you can go and get a gig on some of these platforms. It might not pay that well, but it will certainly add to your resume. Is that a better thing for my son or a student who's looking to attach themselves to the labor market than potentially going and getting what are, whatever job can pay when they're finished with their education? So I think we need to, this open talent economy concept, and, and it kind of takes what you just said a step further, maybe even early in your career, the kinds of attachments you have might be choppy, but they could lead to what you want faster. Mm -hmm. well, and that's one of the premises, of course, of the college system, which is the applied learning piece of it. You know, I mean, the, the traditional, you know, tell me, show me, let me try you know, that becomes, I think, critical as we move people through a number of different potential careers in their lifetime. Yeah, I'd, I'd really like to see employers step up and expand the concept of apprenticeship to far more types of roles. Yeah, we did see them step away from that a bit um, a couple of decades ago, you know, historically with uh, even in the trades area, it was always the employer providing the training pretty much. And uh, then the colleges have stepped into that, uh, into that territory. So it's been an interesting shift. If you could tell the provincial and federal governments one thing that you think would help as we move through this time frame, what would it be? Boy, that's a tough one. I, I, think, I think they do have sort of two key roles in this time in particular. And one is to lead, the, lead by example. Mm -hmm. um, governments are uh, collectively are one of our largest employers in Canada, if not the largest. So what they do when it comes to opening up the aperture of recruiting, employing Canadians across the country, including rural and remote, hard to employ, really making remote work the thing that drives that, all those moves, when they do them, it, it does a couple of things at once. One, it helps a huge employment market, but two, it paves the way for the private sector. It probably also begins to influence policy. If I had to say one thing, I think that would be number one. Okay, I'll give you two. <laughs> well, if, if I had to a second, then it, it is to think deeply about an employment framework for the 21st century. And I don't think we need to look any further than the contingent workforce or gig economy. Right now, we, we are very biased towards full-time employment as the only really positive form of labor market attachment. But, you know, whether we like it or not, the growth in, in the contingent workforce is, is twice, if not three times the pace uh, of the rest of the market. So I think we need to start to think about how do we build a healthy version of that market for Canada that's good for employees first uh, and employers, employers second. You're right. There is, there's definitely a bias towards, you know, of being a full-time employee or employer with the full-time positions, probably because there's a mistaken sense, I think, of the loyalty factor. We have been very successful at uh, working with, you know, contractors, working with 24-hour uh, week employees, those types of things. Um, do you see that shifting quickly in the rest of the rest of the environment? 
Yeah, and perhaps too quickly, because, you know, I've often said, especially when I'm talking to U.S. audiences, I've said, boy, contingent workforce is a big problem for you. But here in Canada, at least a contingent worker has health care. But what they don't have is, you know, for many of them, they can't get a rental because without a full time job, they can't they can't prove they should get one. It can be just as difficult to get a mortgage. Mm-hmm. We, we don't have expansive portable benefits and pensions. But there's no reason why, and I mean, I could go on, but there's no reason why those sorts of supports aren't possible. Mm-hmm. We just have to imagine, imagine it and build it. I think one of the reasons why it's not happening at the pace that we'd like is it's been tempting, and certainly this is the direction the courts are going, to just to just say, well, this is an unhealthy new market, and let's just turn them back into employees. Mm-hmm. But my worry is the, the horses are out of the barn, and... And what we'll, what we'll actually be doing is muting the impact of a potentially healthy labor market as opposed to uh, shepherding its its growth. You know, that's kind of the boomerang effect you were talking about earlier as well, as it relates to working remotely, working back at the office, as mm-hmm. opposed to moving towards a hybrid environment. Do you think we have a chance of creating the right work environment coming out of this pandemic? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, for, for those workers that are lucky enough that their job suits hybrid, what a wonderful vision that is if we can make it true. And a lot of employers are working very hard on making it true, it, especially those employers who've realized maybe we won't even run this through policy. Maybe I won't tell you what day of the week to show up. And this is mandatory and that's mandatory. But I will move to say, actually, I'm going to make it your responsibility as an employee to make the right decision about being in the right place at the right time. And like any other element of performance, we'll judge you on that. But what a wonderful gift if we can make it work. And that's all about moving towards, and, and I, I mentioned this a little earlier about, you know, getting away from the fact that you have to be able to count heads every morning to ensure that your workforce is doing what they're supposed to be, and instead shifting to using key performance indicators. Yeah, and we we often so I mean this is certainly work that we're that we've done for a long time and now has become much more popular is look at performance management and try to redesign it. And you know, to your point, one of the things we'll often say is at its core, we want it to be results-based performance management. So wherever you can, you're saying to an employee, here's what I expect in a couple of weeks. You maintain an open dialogue during that time, and at the end of the two weeks, you judge the outcome. And what's beautiful about that kind of system is, you know, rather than getting obsessed with creating fixed or static outcomes, you can actually say, well, why don't we see how our top performers do with those dynamic outcomes and keep recalibrating what we expect sort of floating towards that top end? In other words, you end up with this moving target for performance that everybody can agree is a positive direction for the business. That too, I think, is something that we've seen a lot of trending towards, you know, no longer. uh, I think we all remember that horrific time where once a year you sat down with your supervisor (laughs) and they gave you a performance appraisal, which you sat there and nodded to. And then you walked out the door and that was the end of it. I like to call the new system sprint performance management, which is, you know, really you're saying small chunks, two weeks, a month be nimble, be able to adapt to the change in work. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You know, the thing that makes me think, though, is we just have to watch for the dark side 
of that performance drive as we build it into our businesses, which is, you know, as those top performers are, are reaching for the top, are they taking care of themselves? Right. So it's an important counterbalance as we build these hybrid workforce arrangements and as, as we build new approaches to performance management to not break it. It is a human system. Mm-hmm. And that probably, I mean, I would think that the, the HR departments are, I'm sorry, we're now calling them talent management departments. I'm not quite sure what the acceptable term is these days, are really challenged through this whole time frame. What do you see, you know, what's their way out of this uh, maze? Yeah, well, HR departments and HR leaders are very challenged because you know, certainly during the crisis, they're, they're being tapped to solve everything. Um, you know, uh, not that they're alone, but, you know, when it comes to return to office planning, when it comes to trying to plan the future, changing programs, remote work on top of the, the day job, most of them have with operations and compliance. So it's, it's a difficult spot and, and on this issue and, and all the other future work issues, my, my, my push and my advice has been recognize that these issues are enterprise issues. They are not HR issues. They're about, you know, when I work with our friends in, in the strategy business, they'll often say strategy is about where to play, uh, how to win, but then how, what capability do we need? And that, that is not just an HR question. It actually is a question that goes right back to the mandate of the CEO mm-hmm. or the deputy minister, depending on your context. Right, exactly. And, and of course, that, you know, brings up the topic of, the skills shortage and the forecasted skills shortage as we move through the next decade. How do you position that? What, what are the, your key concerns and maybe some things that you think we could do to help uh, mitigate? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, even if we do end up in a protracted recovery, there are still going to be people with job without jobs and, and jobs without people. You know, you look for an example, we, we, we work with a lot of businesses that are trying to build, businesses that require AI specialists. And here I mean people who really know the bleeding edge of AI science. And last we checked, there were only about 10,000 of those people globally. So that's a big problem. And it's a multi-layered problem because you're not going to build, we'll be really happy if we get that to 20,000, right? It's not a job for everyone. So that kind of problem, that kind of skills shortage suggests we need those open talent economies we were talking about earlier, we need to figure out how to share those resources amongst organizations because it's very unlikely anyone's going to win the battle to get enough of what they need. But on the other hand, at the same time, we've got what I like to call the truck driver quandary. In North America, there's still not enough people who know how to drive transport trucks. (laughs) It's a serious issue. And, And yet, you know, I know why we hesitate as educators and as governments, because we also know somewhere down the line, there will be driverless technology. So how do you, in the interim, attract people to those sorts of roles to both, you know, give them positive labor market attachment, but also feed the economy, and but yet help them get ready for the future at the same time? That's where I think government has a big role to play. And uh, again, I'll go back to, you know, some of the challenges that the college sector in Ontario, certainly across the country in Canada, was experiencing, which was there was a bias towards a four-year university degree. Mm. That was, you know, and it was inherent in both 
you know, from a parental perspective, certainly from an education perspective, uh, you know, so over time, we have started to change that, but it's taken a lot of support from government, a lot of programming from government and a willingness to, you know, spur on funding for apprentice positions, that kind of thing. I would hazard a guess that that's what it's going to take with this particular topic as well. I think so. You know, I've also I've spent some time with the trade associations, for an example, talking about the future work. And when it comes around to advice, I've said to them, I think you guys should go on the offensive. I can see an ad campaign that says, you know, thinking of becoming an accountant. <laughs> Maybe some dark music in the background. Um, <laughs> right. And then, you know, I'm being facetious. I do think there's a future for accounting. But from their perspective, they really should be pressing that. You know, one of the ways we think about disruption is we've, we've realized that jobs are not being disrupted, tasks are. And when you look wholesale at the trades, many of them, they will be working differently in the future, but the vast majority of those tasks are intact. Those trades are safe for a very long time. And, you know, I don't think, I don't think, unfortunately, there's sort of this culture, especially in Canada, of not looking closely at those as options for our kids. Yeah, um, it, topic near and dear to my heart. My my son is a finishing carpenter, mm -hmm. and um, you know something that he picked up on very early in high school that he wanted to do. So he was fortunate, and uh, and a number of his friends who went the academic route are now rethinking and returning to school to reskill. So I, I, again, as I say, I mean, the government has a big role to play there. Uh, everyone does as far as taking a look. And, and as you look to new jobs for the future, that I think becomes important. How do we position these new future roles in a way that make them attractive? Yeah. And while we're, you know, on a role implicating people, let's look at employers. Uh, so I, you know, I think one of the big challenges for employers has been not many have yet figured out what the work of the future is. And it's hard for them to articulate. Uh, I, I remember a couple of years ago, there was a big uh, survey of uh, chief executive officers, officers in the U.S. asking them what skills they felt they needed for the future. And disappointingly, the number one skill they came up with was people who can follow processes. <laughs> and it, it goes to... You know, quite. I understand why this focus on the very near term uh, in the private sector, but you know, educators and governments need employers to take the time to do the math on the tasks in their jobs and figure out the skills of the future at a much greater level of detail in order to help us to know what to do, who to build. I must admit, I'm you know, I'm at a loss as well. I was sitting on a panel discussion the other day and someone in the audience asked us uh, what we thought our business would look like in five years. And my response was, I wasn't quite sure I knew what it was going to look like in five months. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have a sense of, of, I think, what the consulting business will look in five years, but it's scenario based. It's, it's sort of if we take the opportunity. But I think we're going to have a far more data literate workforce where the idea that analytics is a department will start to melt away and everybody will be engaged in analytics. It'll be part of the language that we use in business. You know, and I think we will certainly be far more flexible to work with clients anywhere. And where that could end up is 
the geographical boundaries we put around our business might disappear. These are great opportunities and just a couple of them that, you know, when we work with employers, what we do is first we start with scenario planning. We start, we start by saying, let's just look at what some of the possible futures are. Get, get two or three of them on the table that we all agree are likely. And then it becomes so much easier to begin to think about the jobs and the skills and the strategy we might need for that future and to put something on paper. Because what happens is you realize that a couple of the ideas work in any of the scenarios, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's about bringing some certainty to the uncertainty so we can move forward a little more boldly. Right. And that's interesting because we've done that in our, one of our work groups is we've taken the business analysts role and split it up amongst a number of people. And we found that that's had tremendous results. Are there other areas that you think are going to be subject to that, that that could be easily spread across the work group as uh, becoming a skill set that a number of people have versus having one person responsible for it? Yeah, it's hard to know where to start. I, I sometimes feel like I'm on a crusade against the dull, the dangerous, and the expensive tasks in the market. Because like, I mean, well, I mean, obviously in the way I describe them, who likes those tasks? The employer doesn't like them um, because they tend to be transactional and a cost center. The employee doesn't like them. Well, I mean, maybe there are a few, but most people don't like those types of tasks. And, and they get in the way of the amount of time that we're able to spend focusing on our key stakeholders, whether they be students or citizens or customers. So, you know, I, I actually see the opportunity for a world where almost every role is transformed. If we can, if we can find the organizational capacity, it's a new capability we need to build to re-architect jobs, which we never really have had to do before because the pace of change hasn't really warranted that kind of thinking. I think it does now. And why would you gauge the willingness of the employer community to embrace this kind of an approach? I think there's tons of willingness, but it's difficult when you're running a business and you don't have that capability. Like the capability I just described is new to us. We're just building it. So it's not an easy ask. It was easy for me to say and harder to do, but I'm very hopeful that with this gift of the increase in remote work that more and more employers are realizing, I can't just take the jobs that I had pre-COVID and put them into hybrid and fully remote arrangements. Bits of the job don't work anymore when I do that. I actually am going to have to recompose them. Mm -hmm. And to give some advice to some business owners or leaders who are listening to this podcast, where do you start? if you need to work towards this reimagined workforce? Where do you start? So from a workforce perspective, the, the, the two types of projects we've been doing, one is you can do this uh, on the back of a napkin if you're a small medium enterprise, is think about, you know, what is my strategy? Where do I want to be in five years from a business perspective? That might be in flux, but that's okay. Just capture it. And then ask yourself, okay, well, what specific skills do I need that I either don't have enough of today or are completely absent? And then decide exactly who is going to need to learn them. And then finally, 
go back to that open talent concept I talked about earlier and say, okay, now I have my order board for the kinds of skills I need. How am I going to build that? So I might develop some of my people, but also who, what am I going to buy? I might have to hire somebody with those skills or maybe I'll just borrow the skill because I just need it to change my business. And then when that's done, I don't need it anymore. It, I mean, that might sound pretty simplistic, but you know, if I use a practical example, if, if you know you want to automate some processes, what better way to start than thinking, well, I need the skill to know how to automate processes, right? And how am I going to get it? Right. Uh, this is a question that I always love to ask is, who do you read to stimulate your thought processes in, these, in this area? Uh, our former leader of human capital just asked me this question recently, and I had to confess that since COVID, I've stopped reading. Isn't that sad? Uh, and you know what's even worse is I had also gotten myself into the habit of uh, listening to podcasts. And, but then I stopped driving, so I'm not listening to those either. And it get me out of the echo chamber. But, you know, I am, I am closely watching what the World Economic Forum is doing in this space because there's a real commitment in that organization to, to try to influence globally both governments and employers to take this opportunity right now. So I, I think that there's a lot of great stuff coming out of that space to consume for sure. Well, this has been fascinating, Stephen. I wanted to just see, is there anything else you'd like to cover or tell our listeners? The message I love to leave people with is, is I hope, a, a note of optimism that, you know, in the midst of crisis, there is incredible opportunity for all of us. And, and it's particularly because this is a moment in history where we're at an inflection point and we can reimagine the way we, we operate. You know, I was, I was talking to a small employer in downtown Ottawa and they were quite dismayed about the fact that businesses weren't reopening because they need people to walk into their business. So I asked them, what would it look like if, if people don't come back in the same volume? How could you create some sort of pop-up version of your business that is, is in every suburb around the city and makes it easier for people to connect with you now and potentially into the future? It's a small change, but it could create a massive opportunity for that business to actually expand as opposed to waiting to see how it's going to turn out. I hope that makes sense. I think, I think it's, it's all in our mindset and how we tackle this and how hopefully we, we, we bring design along as a partner and, and try out something new. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Stephen. That's been very eye-opening and I uh, encourage everyone to, um, you know, listen to the podcast, go and take a look as well at the Future of Work uh, presentation that Stephen did earlier today. It's all on the Future of Work speaker series website. And uh, thanks very much for listening. And thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of the Future of Work series. Let's keep the conversation going. So follow us on social media and learn about our events at futureofworkseries.ca. I'm Catherine LaRue. Thanks for joining us.